0: Welcome to the February 24th edition of Ukraine Without Hype. My name is Romy Kratsky, and beside me is my colleague, Anthony Bartoway. And for today, uh, which is going out on the one-year anniversary, I suppose, of the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine, we're joined by our old friend and colleague and former Ukraine Without Hype co-host, Maria Romanenko.
1: Hello. Yeah, I was I was quite tempted to say hello when you were introducing the host. And I was like, oh, no, wait, I'm not a host. <laughs> so it's just weird to be a guest here, not, not a host.
0: Well, you're always welcome on the pod uh, if you ever want to join us. Uh, we're going to be doing something a little different than our usual episode. Uh, instead of going over the headlines, we'll do that next week. Uh, instead, we're going to sit down and talk, all three of us, about how the past year has been, what a year of war has changed for us, in us, um, and in the world at large. And how we've dealt with the horrors and nightmares that those, this war has spawned. Uh, but before we jump into the serious details, Maria, I wanted to ask you a question first. Uh, you left Ukraine around the beginning of the invasion, right?
1: Yes. Yeah. We left on the, well, on the, in the first hours. We started going uh, towards Lviv around 10 a.m. on the 24th
0: of February. What exactly, if you could give us uh, a quick recap of what those first hectic days of evacuation were like and, you know, what, where your mind was at um, during that time.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, so I didn't really think about leaving at all. Uh, I would not have left had it not been for my partner who's from Manchester. And he was actually refusing to come visit me because of the multiple warnings. And we all remember what the weeks leading up to the full scale invasion were like. Um, and then we decided to meet in Poland instead. And then after spending like eight and a half days, I decided to go back to Ukraine and he basically followed me. So I didn't really, you know, I always thought that I would just, stay and didn't really know what to expect to be honest but i thought that i would be staying but because it just so happened that we were together in the kiev region on the morning of 24th um, and he told me that he would be leaving because it's not his country he doesn't want to be caught up in a war in a country that's not his own he's also a jewish and um he is you know in his it's in his family history that if he don't leave quickly enough then um, you might not survive at all. So he's kind of got that ingrained in his family history. And he was like, I'm leaving. If you, if you want to stay, you do stay, but I'm leaving regardless. And I basically had to choose between my family and my partner, which is a very difficult choice to make. I had about an hour to make that. Whilst uh, Jez and my, uh, dad were, uh, filling up the car with petrol. My dad very kindly agreed to drive, um, just to beef from, from the region. Um, and I had that one hour and I just decided to get into the car as well. And, um, you know, I thought that I can always change my mind, uh, when I'm in View. And then we just, after spending a couple of hours in View, just getting a bit of sleep, we, uh, started moving towards the border and we had a hellish journey out because it was when everybody else was doing the same thing. So altogether it took us 40 hours, uh, from kiev region to the border of Poland, And that includes 23 hours uh, on our feet without any food, water. In uh, toilet facilities, being nearly crushed to death, seeing other people being crushed to death and being carried out on stretchers, uh, we saw some horrible things because there was such a big crowd over there. but we also see lots of acts of kindness, so uh, we had a very strange uh, experience getting out, but we remained there.
2: That was one of the reasons of uh, why I, I stayed for as much as I did was just because I saw that happening, and that sounded like a worse option than you know going to romeo's house in a different city uh it just seemed um like that would cause more difficulties than staying uh, where i was uh but i was just wondering um as you were leaving uh this seems like you know such a a uh well-trodden kind of question but one that i really keep thinking about is like once you crossed over the border into poland um what kind of reception did you get there uh like what were the what were the steps that you took after you crossed the border after you were uh safe as it were
1: i yeah so i think my partner had most of the things planned out so i was the one i was kind of just following him But he tried to, so he was the one in charge of our escape. He was the one kind of, um, being very, very focused on getting out. And I'm grateful for him for doing that because my mind was a little bit all over the place. At the same time, I was giving out probably like around a hundred interviews to different media organizations. So I would just, I was on the phone all the time as we were, um, getting moving towards the border and as we were, uh, getting into Poland. Uh, I just kept talking and taking different calls. I didn't even know who was calling anymore. I just had so many media requests. And then when we, um, when we got in, we just, it wasn't like we were greeted by an army of volunteers. Everybody just wanted to help us. And it was such a surreal experience because we, we had just spent 23 hours in our feet being treated like, um, like animals in a barn, you know, we had, didn't have toilet. So just as I said, and that can get really hard. I started my period at the same time. So I was just literally bleeding through my jeans and I was feeling really sick because I get cramps, uh, when I'm on my period. So I just felt like the most disgusting human being, you know, after 23 hours and having blood on my jeans and just, uh, not having used the toilet, not having eaten and just getting there. And then all of a sudden you, you know, you get kind of all over, all, all around you, people want to help you and they offer you food and they, they offer you water, hot drinks. And then you see all of those people offering, uh, free rides to almost whatever city you want to go to in Poland and free accommodation. And that was just really. Kind of, um, you know, that, that's an experience when you see that everything. I was given like a, a cup of soluble coffee, which normally you, you wouldn't really rate really high, highly, but the, at that point, it felt like a divine drink because you just, it's your first sip of, of a coffee in, in, in more than a day. And. You just get something nice and warm in your mouth. And it just, uh, you know, it, it just all of those things that are normally so trivial, they feel so great and the kindness of people, it just literally makes you want to cry. We had tears in our eyes and we ha- were driven, uh, we're driven by two Ukrainian guys, uh, who have lived in Poland for some time. They drove us to Krakow, uh, and they didn't take any money. They didn't want us to thank them. They didn't, they didn't even tell us their names. Um, and. Again, that car that we were in, again, it was just some simple car, but it felt like the most comfortable seat in the world after standing up for 23 hours. It was just insane to see so many people wanting to help. We were quite busy as we were fleeing. We kind of didn't really, weren't really able to follow the news or see what's happening or seeing what's happening in Poland. Um, so as we were, we were like experiencing it all without realizing what was to come. I didn't know how much support there was in the world. Like, and then I started seeing all the, videos and photos from the UK, people just drawing like Ukrainian flags on their faces and people being really, really supportive. So the support in Poland, especially, but in the UK as well, was just completely overwhelming.
2: And you're able to go to the UK straight from Poland? There's enough flights for, for that?
1: Um, well, we weren't able to go straight away. So what okay. happened is that I um, I didn't have a visa or anything to go to the UK. Yeah,
2: that's the trick.
1: Um, so I had applied for a tourist visa, like the UK government advised. So there was a call with FCDO, um, and the embassy advising in British nationals who are in Ukraine, what to do, because a lot of them have Ukrainian partners, Ukrainian families. And they said that the best bet is for the Ukrainian partners to get a tourist visa and that was in the beginning of February. And that's exactly what I did. I applied for a tourist visa, which normally takes a week or two to get, um, but i applied what i think on the 8th of february and it was already 24th so it was uh, more than 2 weeks since i applied and i haven't heard back and i found it strange so we tried to find out what happened to my visa and because we had so much media coverage as i said the journalists were very you know were really really wanting to help us we went to warsaw to the british embassy and again they wouldn't talk to me at the british embassy i don't have a british passport they only talk to british passport holders but my partner does, Um and he tried to find out. He started asking them what happened to Maria's visa, where did it go. And then the same thing was being done by our MP uh, of our area. He was trying to find out what happened. And then the journalists were constantly making calls to the British Embassy and to the Home Office trying to ask uh, what happened to my visa. And after we put all of that pressure on them, they were like, we're going to give you a visa waiver, which uh, most people don't even know what it is. It's kind of like it's a thing and not a thing at the same time. So it's something that goes into the system, but you don't get a letter confirmation. You don't get an email about it. There's no way to prove that you have it other than the people just literally going into the system and checking. So I had lots of fun with that when I arrived to the airport in Kharkov.
2: That sounds like a bureaucratic nightmare, Just them to just say, oh, just go, trust us, you'll be fine.
0: Yeah, you're the system. Customs people are famously understanding and reasonable when it comes to these sorts of things
1: yeah i mean we just well we, well first of all when we were in krakow airport they were they were telling me i couldn't get on the flight because i didn't have a visa and they didn't believe me that i had a visa waiver and i told them that it should be in their system they were like there's nothing there and then a colleague uh, was like oh actually uh, you know another woman who was next to her she was like oh actually i have seen somebody with a visa waiver i this other system and i was like it's two systems what, why, why, you know, why did you not check both of them straight away? They're like, oh yeah, yeah, you can go through. And then the same thing when I arrived into the UK. So it's not enough to have the visa waiver. They still need to email the home office, which is like the foreign ministry basically of, uh, of the UK. They still need to, um, to email the home office and for home office to confirm that I can enter. And that took two and a half hours to hear back from home office. And whilst I was waiting two and a half hours, uh, in the airport in Manchester, they detained me. And they sent uh, counterterrorism
0: police for me to ask me questions and make sure that I wasn't a terrorist. What kind of questions did they ask? I'm just going to wrap my mind around the, the mindset of someone being like, hey, there's a Ukrainian that's just come off the plane in Poland. Let's make sure she's not part of ISIS. I'm, I'm really curious about what, what kind of questions they could have possibly asked.
1: I mean, the first thing I was asked, and which was actually by the border, you know, in the booth, the people at the border, um, control, they were like, do you know when you're coming back to Ukraine? And I was like, (laughs) guys, you know, that's a war. How am I supposed to know? I've just fled. Like, do you know when the war will be over? Like, what kind of question is that? I was like, I have no idea.
2: Do you have a return um, plane ticket to the country that doesn't have planes anymore?
1: Yeah, and airports. Um, so, and then the the counterterrorism police officers—they were actually really nice. You know, in that sort of way that uh, I don't know if you ever had the experience of being questioned at the at the UK border when when you just arrive, and if you're not British or if you're not from the EU, they ask you lots of questions, kind of in a very nice way. Like,
0: well, if you have an American passport, um, I can tell you with experience that they they ask you like two questions why are you here and uh have you ever been to the uk before and that's it
1: well no right like, because i obviously i came to the uk before i went to the uk before i studied here and every time with my ukrainian passport i would get like a 10 minute conversation they would literally chat with me for 10 minutes Um, just having this like kind of like nice chat, but in the same way, it's a bit patronizing because you know that they're trying to catch you out, that if there's something wrong with you, that they are sort of observing how you react. And, you know, if you do something wrong, then, uh, they'll kind of take that on board. So it was a similar thing. They were like, Oh, tell me what happened. Tell us what happened and how, you know, how you managed to get out of Ukraine. And then they asked us about the journey and then they asked, um, about coming here and they were asking all these questions at which point. At one point, my partner just goes like, honestly, you know, if you want to find out more, we're happy to chat to you, but we just spend, you know, a few days just getting out of the country. And if you really want to find out more, you can just Google our names and you'll see everything you need there. Or you can just go outside and talk to the three camera crews that are waiting for us to get out and to interview us. And they were like, okay, (laughs) no questions anymore. So it was, it was a strange experience. They weren't, you know, I wasn't mistreated or anything, but they were still alone. Uh, Wait and time and it was i felt a bit strange especially after going through what we went
0: through and you've been in the uk this whole time right for the past year yes yeah how's the bureaucratic stuff been like because like a tourist visa is what like three months max um how's the bureaucratic stuff been for the rest of the year once you know you got out of the airport passed all the customs and stuff
1: uh, well, tourist visas vary, you know, they can get, uh, the, normally for Ukrainians before, now they, I think they closed them completely, or they, at least they did close tourist visas, and uh, uh, straight away as a response to the full-scale invasion. But the tourist visas would be anywhere between six months, and then you get one year, and then you get two years, and I'm not sure if there's more than that. Um, but, um, I, yes, yeah, so I had the visa waiver, but, uh, after a couple of weeks of me being here, they finally announced Homes for Ukraine scheme, which is like the scheme that they have, um, for Ukrainian war refugees, which basically matches up uh, English families who want to host the Ukrainian with Ukrainians who want to come over and they expanded the family visa scheme. So, before uh, before that, before uh, March when they announced that they uh, you, you only could be eligible for a family visa if you married or if you lived together for two years. Obviously, my partner and I are not married and also we've not lived together for two years because he lives in Manchester and I live in Kiev. So that completely was useless to us. But they decided to expand it and say that, uh, if you're engaged, uh, that also you, you can also apply for a family visa. And that's what enabled me to apply for a family visa and, uh, get the family visa for three years. And that most, all Ukrainians who are here now, they have a visa for three years. Uh, it just depends whether they have the family visa or the homes for Ukraine visa. But they pretty much function in a very, very similar way. It's three years. You get the, um, biometric residence permit. You're allowed to work. Uh, you're allowed to study. You're allowed to go out and come back. So it's quite a good system, but there are definitely some things within it that were overlooked and that are causing, um, some significant problems to Ukrainians, not me, because I'm, I lived here before I have support. I, um, I knew most of the, you know, I knew how to navigate the, the British bureaucracy, but a lot of Ukrainians are struggling with issues such as housing, um, health care, you know, how to how to navigate all of this stuff. It's a very new world for them. And we also tried to help them. My partner and I would try to signpost them as well.
2: Yeah, you kind of preempted my question there about uh, tourist visas, because usually with a tourist visa, you can't work. And you can't be in a country for you know three years long without having any source of income. So was that decision made pretty quickly that people would be on this visa that allowed them to work, or were people stuck in like some kind of limbo for a while where they just had no way to support themselves?
1: Well, it depends what you consider really quickly. So I think they announced uh, homes for Ukraine uh, on around the 16th of March or something like that. So that's already three mm-hmm. weeks yeah, just over three weeks, uh, since the full start of the full-scale invasion. So we ourselves, as we were, uh, by the British embassy in Warsaw, we saw lots of Ukrainians, uh, who were trying to get entry into the UK as well. And they weren't, you know, they were like people like quite wealthy people from what it looked like. They just, they only wanted to come to the UK because they also had some family in the UK or they had their partner in the UK, the. And they had, so we were lucky because we had all the media coverage. We helped, we had people helping us, but all those people didn't have the same support and the British embassy wouldn't talk to them because as I said, they don't talk to you unless you have a British passport. Um, and there was nowhere to go really because uh, even though there was like a visa application center, I think it was shut on most days or most hours, there were no available slots. And, uh, those people basically hooking, they were like being diverted and said, that go to this visa application center. That's shot most of the time. So, you know, there was lots of frustration and lots of uncertainty for other people. So, um, even though three weeks, maybe doesn't sound like a long time, but that's three weeks that people had to cover out of their own pockets and have to live, live somewhere. But I think in general, you know, the, the, the visa schemes that were created, they are really good. As I said, they allow you to do pretty much everything. They um allow people to come here. This The scheme, the Homes for Ukraine scheme itself, gives people a roof over their head. They come and they stay with some um English family. The only, I think, problem here is that these relationships quite often collapse between English families and Ukrainians. And then the Ukrainians don't really, you know, they have to go somewhere after they've been kicked out. And uh, it can be really tough to find a property at such a short notice. Some areas are better than... Then others, you know, some have some support systems, but others who just literally have to go through the homelessness scheme, which means that people are put in hotels and hostels uh, for a t- for some time, like quite often a few months, and there are no cooking facilities there. So if you have a child, you can't really cook for them. And it can be really, really tough. We, we met a few people like that who had to stay in homeless accommodation. So uh, there are definitely some shortfalls of the system. The other one is that uh, when the scheme was announced that... Uh, they said that uh, the government offers wraparound support to Ukrainians um, who come through the scheme, and that basically hosts only need to open up the house, and everything else will be taken care by taken care of by the government. And that definitely didn't happen because it turned out that the hosts have to do everything. And we know this because we hosting my mom through the system, and basically, you the hosts have to be uh, quite often like taxi drivers driving them to the bank, to register with the bank, driving them to the GP, to the family doctor to register there, driving them to uh, the BRP appointment to get the British uh, the biometric residence permit. And they have to help with translation, they have to help with uh, navigating the bureaucracy. So it's quite a big workload on the hosts. And I think that's also part of the reason why the relationship break down, because The host didn't realize that it'd be such a huge commitment. They thought that they would just need to open up the house and that's it. And it turns out that there's a lot more to it. That's the big downfall, I would say, of the system.
0: culture shock thing, I think, is really something that isn't focused on enough, I feel. Um, In fact, my wife and I recently went through a similar experience. Um, My wife is going to head to uh, my U.S. hometown of New York City for a few months. Um, but there, there was a little, uh, miscommunication between us and, uh, the host family that I planned to put her up at. Uh, and it turns out that, uh, Ukrainian culture and Western culture and mannerisms are pretty different. Uh, Ukrainians can be very direct apparently, um, by Western standards. Uh, I, I'd never thought that directness could be manipulative, but that's how my American friends took it. Uh, and I was a bit shocked, to be honest, because I, I never even considered that um, as an issue. Uh, have you like found any instances of like culture shock or like help people adapt to some of the things? Because I think there might even be more of a difference between Ukrainian culture and British culture than between Ukrainians and Americans.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to unpack there. There's definitely a lot of differences in the cultures. I literally just did like a... Telegraph podcast last week uh, mostly focusing on the differences in the culture um and um there's some difference that are very very apparent apparent in the first weeks of ukrainians coming uh to the uk so that those include um those are around children so for example in Ukraine children don't really have separate bed times so they um uh, go to bed around the same time as adults do um unless they're probably really, really small. But, you know, uh, as soon as you sort of start walking, talking, and kind of almost uh, behaving like an adult, that you, you lead the same life as your parents, and you go to bed when, when you want. But here in the UK, children can go to bed as early as like 7 p.m., 8 p.m. And that comes as a huge shock to Ukrainians. And uh, if if the Ukrainian comes with uh, children, and they allow the, the children to stay up until 11 p.m., and the British kids in the same household, they go to bed at seven. That creates, it creates some friction and the, the British child can ask, well, why do I have to go to bed when this child uh, doesn't? And that's been, yeah, that's created some uh, friction and some, um, relationship uh, issues between Ukrainians and British. The other one is, um, the notice that in Ukraine, when a child gets sick, it's like straight away, they stay at home. They don't go to school. They they need to be treated until they get better, so that not to spread the germs, but also not to get worse. Uh, as I've noticed, that's what the Ukrainians say. So that the child's immunity is um, low when they get sick. So if they go to school, they they can easily pick up something else. So they just keep the child at home. But this is unheard of in the UK. So the children go to school even if they cough, even if they sneeze. So that wow, they- really? Yeah, is that
0: is that not a thing in the in the US? I mean. It can be, but my parents always kept me home if I was sick. Yeah, but you have a
1: Ukrainian mom, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. I grew up in uh, in more Eastern European culture.
1: Yeah, so, yeah, there's other. And then there's also, I think the other one is uh, the throwaway culture, which I think plays quite well to, to Ukrainians here because uh, British people throw away things very, very easily. And when I say throw away, I don't mean literally put in the bin, but, like, they give it away. And um there's a, a lot of charity shops that have pretty much perfect condition clothes and people are readily um able, you know, are ready to give away the, the clothes or the furniture that they don't need and basically when Ukrainians are move into new properties that come and furnished here in the UK, they can easily get like sofas for free. And that doesn't really happen in Ukraine. You know, in Ukraine people hoard on to things as as long as they can until things literally have holes in them and are no longer usable. So that's another one. And I think the healthcare also gets, um, a huge, is a, is a big shock for a lot of Ukrainians that here you have to wait like seven, eight months sometimes to go to, to see a doctor in Ukraine. You're able to see a doctor within like a couple of days. If you see a doctor, you just get an appointment through your app and then that's it, you know, and you, you're there. But here it's always like, oh, it'll be one year wait or something like that. So that's another one. And uh, the other one that I heard people comment on is like love of letters. Um, so in the UK, you get lots of letters. So if you, uh, get, uh, healthcare through NHS, which is the national healthcare service, uh, they will send you letters about appointments to remind you about appointments. They will send you letters with like results. they will send you letters about everything. And the same for other things like your bank will send you letters, um, your, your company's gas, well, you know, everybody will send you letters, and uh, people find it really strange because Ukraine is such a computerized and digitalized society now that everything is really being done on the phone. There's obviously a lot of food differences that are also quite quite um, interesting. We can observe that with my mom when she tries out the new British foods. Uh, but there's a, there's a lot of uh, di- differences, and some are quite funny and
0: <laughs> to observe. So I think we, we, have moved on to the point where I, I feel comfortable asking, what have you been doing for the past year? Like, can you run us through um, your like activities and your work over the, the, the year of war and how it's developed?
1: Uh, yes. So, well, as I I got here, you know, the first, well, the first couple of weeks were an absolute blur. I don't really remember what I was doing. Don't worry. Neither do I. I know that I must have done it at least dozens, dozens of interviews and appeared on dozens of uh, TV channels and radio, uh, radio channels and radio stations and written lots of articles. But I was just so incredibly busy and I just didn't really know what I was doing. I was just like agreeing to everything because I felt like I, I had to you know, it was my job. I was one of the first Ukrainians to arrive to the UK uh, and I felt like it was my job to continue talking about Ukraine so that Ukraine doesn't disappear from the headlines. And uh, the same in the the first couple of weeks, I also saw lots of kindness and people just uh, wanted to pop in and give me like a drawing that their four-year-old son has made for me or give me flowers. You know, there was a lot of, the first couple of weeks were really busy but also really cute because people were trying to show support as much as they could. Then after a couple of weeks, I kind of Took my, you know, took uh, some rest and uh, caught my breath. And I was able to think how I can help uh, more beyond just, uh, beyond just writing and appearing on uh, media channels. And I remember that I took a walking tour of Manchester uh, a year earlier during the pandemic because my friend was visiting from London and we, we went on it. And I didn't know much about Manchester before that walking tour. On that walking tour, I just basically fell in love with Manchester, and I realized how important its history is, how much it has contributed to the world. If you have listeners from the u s uh, they might not have known that uh, the abolition of slavery was thanks to Manchester as well because Manchester had a huge cotton industry, and the cotton was being imported from uh, the u s from the from north america from from there, and that was obviously done picked with uh, slavery with a uh, slave force and uh, Manchester was one of the Biggest importers of that, and uh, there was a point when Manchester decided to stop using slavery, the stop using cotton that was picked by slaves, and they made that decision, and that led to uh, the U.S. Uh, stopping slavery altogether. So th- there's lots of history in Manchester that just doesn't just belong to Manchester or just the U.K. It belongs to the whole world. The start of the start of suffragette movement and feminism happened in the U.K. Obviously, uh, happened in Manchester. Sorry, and obviously. The Industrial Revolution started in Manchester, so it's such a wonderful city and I wanted to make sure that other Ukrainians know this. So I contacted the free Manchester walking tour company and I said, hi guys, you know I've just arrived from Ukraine. You might not remember me, but I attended your walking tour uh, a year earlier. Would you like to do some walking tours for Ukrainians? I'm happy to volunteer and translate for free. And they were like, absolutely, we were actually thinking how we can help Ukraine. So we did four of those walking tours and we, uh, we introduced uh, more than 400 Ukrainians to Manchester, just telling them the history and all of those facts and some of the facts that Ukrainians can really relate to because uh, Manchester had some horrible events happen as well. Not least, you know, not, not least uh, the IRA bomb in 1996 or the Ariana Grande bombing in 2017, where either lives were destroyed or big parts of the city were destroyed, but people were able to come together and rebuild and uh, unite and just not let the evil destroy it. So in the same way, Ukrainians obviously come in together and to fight in the evil. So, um, I've been doing those walking tours. Uh, I've been, uh, also interpreting for lots of Ukrainians just in general in house and in healthcare. I signed up with some, uh, interpreting agencies. Uh, as I said, we've been signposting Ukrainians. Uh, we've been given lots of talks. So I talked at the university of Manchester, um, about my, my story, but also about what's happening in Ukraine to lots of Ukrainian students across the UK. Um, I've talked at um, different charity events, poetry events, and I've been obviously doing lots of writing as well. And we also write in a book where we tell our story, my partner and I, we tell our story of crossing the border. We tell the story of people who can't tell their stories, such as Max, uh, who Romeo, you you know. He was <laughs> not only my colleague, but your colleague as well, Max Levin who was um, not only killed, but tortured by the Russians last spring. So I tell his story a little bit, the story of my grandma who passed away and I won't be able to see her. So we're kind of trying to draw attention to what's happening, but also in Ukraine, but also uh, the story of us getting out because that was very, very popular at the time. And we preparing talks for Ukraine, which is uh, going to be like a, we're going to be giving out the talks that we have been giving out, but in a more structured, organized way. And we want to make a documentary about Ukraine when we go back, when Ukraine wins. And we want to set up a company called Invest in Ukraine where we will have British businesses um, invest in Ukraine when Ukraine is in the process of needing the reconstruction. So we have lots of plans. I would call uh, that I kind of went from being just a journalist to kind of an activist. <laughs> Some people call me a campaigner. I just try to take ev- every single opportunity to talk about Ukraine and help people find out what's going on. Like last month in January, I acted on stage <laughs> in the play about Crimea. So I never, uh, never acted on stage like that as an adult. And then I was like, suddenly taking part in this play that was, um, uncovering and shedding light on, uh, Russia's actions in occupied Crimea, how Crimean Tatars are being mistreated, tailed, uh, searched, um, and, uh, sent to different areas of Russia as well. Um, so I. See many, many various things, but all
2: of them are basically around Ukraine. I'll ask this question specifically in the context of Manchester, but if you can talk on the rest of the UK, that would be great. Are, is there much um, formal um, support structures in the way of you know NGOs, charities, government for specifically Ukrainian refugees that are? Um, you say that, uh, for example, you did this a lot of this interpretation for people. And how a lot of the responsibilities fell onto individual hosts, but how much of that is kind of taken up by uh, community organizations of one kind or another? Is that structured or just mostly individual?
1: I would say that it took, well, in the first uh, couple of weeks, there wasn't really much done. And, and I think the main reason is because the government was, wasn't really organizing anything. And what we noticed is that those Ukrainians who have come to the UK, they, most of them would have come after spending a couple of weeks in Poland and they come here with their children and they're like, Hey, what's, what activities can I get my child into? Um, cause in Poland, we had free this and free that and free that. And we we're like, Sorry, but there's nothing free here. You know, there's no activities organized for Ukrainian children. Like, oh, oh, okay, right. So they're quite shocked to find out that there wasn't anything organized by the government in the first few months in Poland. There were many, many activities uh, for Ukrainian children, for Ukrainians, all being done for free. And most of that, a lot of that effort came through the government. Here in the UK, the government didn't really do anything like that, at least not in the first few weeks. So some volunteers started doing various things, such as, as I said, you know, I I was one of those people just doing walking tours and that gave people something to do because they wanted to do something with their free time. It was uh, a lot of those tours were during summer and the kids can't get full yet. They're bored. They don't know what to do. And this gave people something to do to meet each other. Uh, A lot of um, things come through AUGB, which is Association of Ukrainians in Great Britain. This is like an umbrella term for um all ukrainian centers across the country and these ukrainian centers have been here since second world war because after world war ii um there was uh there were ukrainians who were in german uh, in nazi captivity and when the war was over obviously they were free to go anywhere or be sent anywhere and germany started sending them back to ukraine but obviously it was um was under Ukraine was under Soviet occupation. Um, Stalin was in power, and those Ukrainians who were in Nazi activities, they were treated as traitors. So they were being sent to concentration camps. They were being punished, for basically not really doing anything other than just ended up in captivity. But the government saw them as traitors. So when the government, uh, when the, when Germany realized that's what was happening, they made a deal with a couple of countries, the UK included. Uh, to send the Ukrainians, instead of sending them to Ukraine, to send them to those countries. So the UK was one of the big countries that took a lot of Ukrainian war refugees at that time. And uh, so they came to different parts of the UK and they started um, establishing this kind of, they call them Oseretky. So that's kind of like a community, basically, in different parts of the UK. And in those communities, they bought land, they started building Ukrainian centers, Ukrainian culture centers, They started like meeting each other and doing Ukrainian dancing, Ukrainian singing, basically retaining that Ukrainians inside them. And now it's been like fourth generation. Now I think we've come to the fourth generation of those people and all of those people have been born in the UK. Now, you know, this generation, the previous one. So English is their first language, but they still retain that Ukrainians, they still do Ukrainian activities. Yeah, so those Ukrainians they have uh, basically retained the Ukrainians um over the the decades that uh the family spent here and there was not much demand for all of that apart from the people who do these things, you know, there were not many visitors to the centers before uh before February last year. And then February last year came and then lots of Ukrainians started coming to the UK. There's now one hundred and fifty thousand uh Ukrainians who have arrived here through both these schemes since last year. And um these centers have suddenly got a whole new meaning. So the AUGB you now and all the local centers, they do lots of work. They help people uh, settle in. They help Ukrainians settle in. They carry out events for Ukrainians. Uh, every Saturday, there's a uh, rally in support of Ukraine here in Manchester uh, between two and four where that is organized by AUGB as well or co-organized by them. Um, these people also, AUGB also helps people find work. They help them with housing as much as they can. They connect them with people. And there's also a Saturday school, school, um, every week for Ukrainian kids where they teach Ukrainian language and teach Ukrainian literature, history, and geography. So there's most of these efforts I think, uh, come through AUGB, but that's not to say that there aren't, uh, other volunteer organizations. That organize uh, events and help Ukrainians. There's also now some efforts that have been started by the government. So, for example, with housing, that is very, very big problem that's been like an elephant in the room for a long time for the government. They were not approaching it and not saying what they're planning to do with all those Ukrainians who are suddenly
2: becoming homeless. UK also has a big housing crisis in general. So add refugees to the mix, and I can't imagine that's very easy to sort out.
1: Yeah, but the problem is that yes, it does have a crisis, but then. If those ukrainians have to become homeless uh most of them the the uk has a kind of duty to put them up somewhere because they Mm -hmm. consider vulnerable because most of them are women and women are considered vulnerable so they have to put them in hostels or hotels and that costs more money for the government than buy and sort out these problems before before uh before people have to become homeless
2: yeah the that's the always the problem with the homelessness is that the the solutions that they have for failing to answer the homeless problem always ends up being more expensive than just giving people housing. Unfortunately,
1: yeah, well, they are. You know, it depends on the area where I am. So that's in uh, Stockport, just near Manchester. There's an organization called Stockport Homes, and it's basically like an ALMO. So it's a independent organization, but it's kind of part of the of uh, Stockport Council, and they match up different landlords with ukrainians they uh, approve those landlords see that everything's fine with the property and then they match them up with ukrainians uh, who are on universal credit which is like the benefit system or as you call it i think welfare in the u.s um so that the money that the ukrainians the housing element of the welfare that they get the ukrainians get can go straight to landlord and they basically make uh, negotiate with the Or try to make the landlords agree to this uh, uh, so that Ukrainians can be put up in properties. So the government has also done some things, but I think it depends a lot on the area where you are. Some are more useless than others, let's say.
2: I guess this next question is more, more of a vibes question, I guess. But when I was talking to people who do similar kind of organizing in Germany and Austria, especially, they say that Ukrainian refugees have faced a lot of harassment from people. Uh, whether by uh, citizens of the Russian Federation living within those countries or people with a kind of ideological connection to the Russian Federation or just your regular run- of the day anti-immigrant bigots of of basically ukrainians facing a lot of like harassment a lot of pressure from these types of people and it being just a constant struggle to have some kind of answer to that uh has that problem been a a big deal in the uk and manchester or are things a bit more chill there than they are in germany for example
1: yeah um so i've talked about this quite a lot in defining interviews when people ask me about um how welcoming the countries are so in the uk it's definitely situation is a lot better than it's in germany uh, I think we, there's not so many Russians here. There's definitely not so many Russians in Manchester. Maybe there's a bit more in London, but even the Russians that kind of know they either quiet or they support Ukraine. So there's not been hostility from the general public. Uh, the other good thing about the UK is that people continue to, in the vast majority, the overwhelming majority continues to support Ukraine. Uh, the Daily Mail did like a poll about whether the UK should uh, support Ukraine more and continue support Ukraine. And like 97% of readers and Daily Mail has a huge reader base, as you, I'm sure you're aware, said that yes, uh, it should continue and should increase the help. So that's a, you know, the majority of people are very, very supportive. You don't really get the Ukraine fatigue, as you call it, um, in, as you do in, in Germany and France. You don't get it here. People still realize that it's important to help Ukraine. There's so much support for Ukraine here. But that saying that, you know, there is definitely some more kind of right-wing and left-wing people that when gets a bit extreme that uh, have sent me abuse on Twitter, for example, and sent other Ukrainians abuse. Um, I've definitely fallen out with the Communist Party of uh, Britain. And yes, it is a thing. I have Lots of people ask me there's a Communist Party in the UK, and it is a thing. They were sending me Stalin Im- images of Stalin and basically telling me lots of horrible things. And the same way you get with some kind of journalists and broadcasters uh on the right wing and um that um buy into russian propaganda and spread it and say how it's a not a russian war against ukraine but it's a NATO expansion to the east um and um stuff like that so so you get you get some wages
0: yeah you got into it and you got into um a little bit of a spat with a presenter, I believe, on GB News, which, as far as I can figure, is like the UK version of, uh, like the far right one American news channel in the US.
1: Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, I mean, yeah, I think the problem with GB News is not the channel itself. It's the fact that they claim to give voices to different people, whether, you know, that if all these are permitted and, when they say that, they don't realize that not every not everything anybody says is a view. Some of these things are complete and utter lies. So, you know, we can talk about opinions, but some things can't be opinions because they're just not true. So that's the problem that people who are um, employed there sometimes spread uh, or quite often spread um uh propaganda spread russian narratives that are not true such as that one of the broadcasters there was uh tweeting that russian language is banned in ukraine i mean you can say on air and once we record is it banned in ukraine guys russian language
0: uh, mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: <laughs> see so uh, this is the kind of things that i've seen um happen and um people just posting complete lies and when you as a ukrainian step up to them and say hi why are you saying all of this this is not true they say but it is true and then you try to argue with them and it just doesn't lead anywhere because they just either block you or they keep sort of doing like personal attacks on you so i had uh one person um employed by them who was kind of trying to dig up some info about me from where i worked before and other things and that
0: wow they were doing oppo research on you
1: yeah this is like not you know this is not done but on the on the level of that channel itself these are people who are do you work for them as freelancers uh but yeah one of them kind of um tried to go on like different social media and uh, to carry out personal attacks on me
0: wow how did you deal with all of that that sounds awful
1: and I'm just trying to ignore it and not to let it get, um, under my skin. I've, um, I've made my, um, offer clear. I said that I want to interview the owner of the channel and ask why they employ people like that. So I wasn't even saying anything bad about, um, about any of the commentators or broadcasters that work there. I was just saying I want to talk to the owner of the channel and ask them, why do you employ people like this? Do you share their views? Is this the views that you have as well? And if not, why do you continue employing these people? But I actually just got an email back today saying that he doesn't wish to talk to me. He doesn't wish to be interviewed by me after considering my offer in, in a lot of detail or something like that.
0: What a shock. The owner of a far-right propaganda channel doesn't actually want to talk about his honest views on things. I wonder why, especially when like
2: the whole basis of a lot of these people of what they're saying is they want open debate and yeah like you said of, express all views but once it comes down to actually questioning their views uh suddenly uh, disappears in the wind
1: yeah i mean i found that uh, interesting because i wasn't really attacking them i wasn't saying that uh you know i was just saying i just want to have a chat and uh if you don't want to do it on gb news which i you know the owner as the owner who doesn't want to do it there because that's kind of um, conflict of interest, I guess, or something like that. Uh, we can do it an independent.
0: I, I don't think these people are too con- concerned with conflicts of interest, Maria.
1: But they said that they don't want to do it on TV News. So I was like, let's do it on an independent platform. You know, we'll be, I'm sure the BBC would love to do that, but, um, no, they don't want to. And I was like, we can even do it privately. I'll just, you know, as long as it's on the record, we can speak privately. But, um, no, so I'll have to see what, what I can do with that.
2: Well, this is the point in the internet discussion where you just sh- show up every day saying, debate me, bro, until they eventually block you. That's usually how this goes. <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, as you guys really know, this is also a kind of a war. You know, there's an information war and mm-hmm. Russia has been pouring in billions of, uh, of money into this and uh, whether, people, whether people pick up these narratives because they paid for it or whether they just pick them up because they don't want to think for themselves. Or because they believe some conspiracy theorists, or because they're very much anti the US anti US, which is fine. You know, if people don't don't like the US government, that's fine. There's a freedom of speech in the US. But that doesn't mean that you have to automatically support Russian narratives if you don't believe in what the US does. Um so all of these people kind of um can do it for various reasons, but it still really harms Ukraine. So that's why I try when I can, when I have the energy, when I have the time to um to Talk about facts and disprove these people because a lot of these people have huge audiences, um, like you know, tens of thousands of people or hundreds of thousands of people. So it's very important that uh, that we, as Ukrainians, as people who have the the view from inside, we try and dominate the the media space and tell what it's really like in Ukraine. Because people, somebody who sat on the sofa in the U.S. or in the U.K. cannot really know what's going on. They claim that they you know, but they don't.
0: Yeah, that's definitely something I actually wanted to 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 ask about next is um being outside of Ukraine uh for this past year. Um how have you been um managing all of the the, the different emotions you must feel when you hear about a missile strike, especially strikes on Kyiv, um or uh pictures of um people mourning their lost comrades on social media? H- how have you learned to live or adapt um to to the emotions that these um these situations must raise
1: um i mean i don't think you can fully learn to adapt with this i think this is something this trauma that pretty much probably every single ukrainian whether they stayed or whether they left as i think it's going to stay with us until ukraine wins and then we can address it properly and heal of it you know get rid of it but right now we can take some steps and to do some things but these things will come back uh, as soon as something else, as you say, like a missile strike happens and it, it, everything comes back. And so there's not really getting rid of it. Now I have the support of my partner who's very different to me in the way he, in the way he thinks and the way he deals with stuff. Um, so it's good to have his perspective and, um, uh, his support. Um, there's definitely been some harder days and some better days uh, <laughs> to be honest. And most of the time I just stay so busy that I don't really um, have time to feel sorry for myself or feel sorry for other people. And there's definitely been days that kind of destroyed me as, uh, you know, for the whole day or just, um, made me break down in tears. And some of those, I can name those, you know, it's when I found out about Max being killed, uh, just felt like a ghost of myself for the whole day. Um, and then when I lost my grandma on Christmas day, um, I just cried and I couldn't enjoy Christmas at all, quite obviously. And then there were other moments when you just wake up you find out the news and you just start crying. Like I cried when the uh, interior ministry leadership was killed in the helicopter crash. I just, you know, it was just really, really sad to have something like that happen. Um, so there are moments. And I think the first time I broke down was actually when we had the first quiet time. So Sometimes being busy actually helps. I don't suggest that as a, as a mechanism, long-term mechanism. But when we were fleeing, I was we so busy not, and we didn't really follow the news as much. And then we sat down in Manchester, we were having dinner. And as my partner showed me a video of Borodyanka and all these like buildings that were turned into ashes and completely black. And I just broke down in tears and I couldn't stop crying. And it was um just awful. So as every Ukrainian, you just get those moments when you just start crying and you just, it just gets a bit too much, but you just try to carry on, I think. What holds all of us together and holds all of us, you know, every single person together is the fact that we all need to continue working for Ukraine. And if we allow ourselves to, um, you know, go down the, the rabbit hole, we help in Russia. So if we look after them, uh, ourselves and we try to just carry on, we help in Ukraine win. So it's uh, either helping Ukraine win or helping Russia win. So most, obviously, all of us choose helping Ukraine win.
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, I've been dealing with, with things um, much in the same way. Staying busy, uh, I think, definitely helps. Maria, do you have any questions for Anthony and I? This is supposed to be a discussion, so you can feel free. Oh, sorry. Have, is, is, that,
1: is that a nice way of you saying that I've been talking too much?
0: No, no, no. <laughs> you can You can keep talking, but if you had anything you wanted to know from our side, because I think our experiences have been um, pretty different, and there might be some insights you uh, might might wanna um, might wanna hear, or at least hear the bullshit that we can ramble on to.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, I had a bit of a catch up with Anthony before you came on, and it was I asked him about why he stayed and how and where he is, and it's quite fascinating to hear people who don't really have to stay um, stay in Ukraine. I know other foreigners who decided to stay, and it's always very
0: admirable yeah anthony actually that is a good question it's been a year why are you still here i mean this
2: is kind of my home now um and this is just where i am i i've had you know the discussion with my parents to at least like visit for a month or something and every time that i give it like serious thought i just end up being flooded with like preemptive survivor's guilt (laughs) To the point where I know that the second I step off the plane, I would just be uh, mentally broken by the fact that I like, you know, abandoned ship or something, even though I would absolutely come back. So a part of it is kind of that mental block. I I can't even picture myself leaving for more than a couple weeks at a time. And even then I can't picture leaving like the European continent. (laughs) I feel like the the further away I go and for the longer it would be like more of a, I, I guess it would just, just myself. I don't want to like implicate anyone else, but to me it would feel like I'm doing something wrong by doing that. And that's how I feel about it.
1: That's interesting. Cause yeah, I've heard, I've heard other people say that. So you feel Ukrainian. So you feel like if you leave that's, um, uh, Betraying Ukraine because you, in some ways, you feel quite Ukrainian by now, I guess.
2: Yeah, like I've been here for a while. Uh, this is where my friends are. Uh, I, uh, very much miss my girlfriend, of course. She's not in the country, uh, right now and hasn't for since before the war. So that's very sad, but she wants to come back to Ukraine at some point too. And I feel like I'm kind of like, uh, uh, holding the house down in some way if, for that as well. And yeah, just in general, the idea of, of leaving, it it stings even thinking about it. So actually doing it, I know would be horrible for me.
1: And Rami, I remember that we had those discussions. And I think I asked you a couple of times before February 24th, if you're planning to go anywhere, because a lot of foreigners were planning to go. Do you regret not having left? Or do you uh, are you happy
0: that you stayed? I can't really say I'm happy to have stayed, but I don't regret um not leaving at all to be honest, one of my biggest regrets for the past year um and actually that's a question i, I guess i'll i want uh, i want to ask both of you but um one of my biggest regrets for the past year to be honest, is that um I've actually managed to stay like relatively safe in Vienna and Kiev compared to um like uh Donbass or Zaporizhzhia or Dnipro or Odessa like compared to like f- more frontline cities life is actually a little too good i feel um and i actually regret not going out there more often um to remind myself what is actually going on because at least for me sometimes you can get to a point where things are so normal especially in the last few weeks when there's no like power cuts or anything and things get almost normal to the point where you can pretend there isn't a war. Um, And whenever that happens, I just feel so enormously guilty. And I start trying to make plans to go out East um, at the first opportunity.
2: Yeah. Well, for me anyway, I just uh, make sure that my alarm system is always on. So even though I have not been to a bomb shelter in several months at this point, I still, you know, every day there's Luke Skywalker telling me to go to a bomb shelter. So that's a bit of a reminder, even when, again, like you said, like things at the moment are
0: basically normal. I don't know. It's just so insane to think about like things being normal. I mean, I think you guys have both probably gotten this question like endless times in the last like week or week and a half. Um, of people asking, oh, you know, what it's like living after a year of war. And I honestly don't know what to tell, what to say when I get that question. Like the stores are open, the shops are open. It's not like the London Blitz, or at least it's not like the London Blitz anymore. (laughs) Um, We're not running for cover into bomb shelters like air missile strikes are basically weather now. Um, it's, It's insane to think
2: about. Yeah, there is literally like an air battle over my apartment a month ago. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. It's just it's just how it is. Like, what's it like to live through war? Pretty much what it's like to live through anything else. You get used to it. Um, I mean, it's still a good idea for a lot of people to stay out of the country if they can, because things can always change. And like I said, this normal is still pretty awful if you sit down and like think about it for a moment and and not just go off of your um you know the programming of getting through day-to-day life and you think to yourself what's actually happening and it is objectively horrifying but people adjust i guess is
0: all i have to say on that yeah people adjust somehow
1: Yeah. That's what I've heard. Even when you had the power cuts, people just tried to get everything done in the two hours that they have. I couldn't really talk to my dad for many, many weeks because of all the power cuts. And whenever I would call him, his phone would be off. And then I would sometimes get, you know, he'd pick up and then he'd be like, I can't talk. We just got power. We just got electricity. So I need to do this and this and that. And I'm like, right. Okay. So, you know, people just kind of try to get everything done in the couple of hours of electricity that they have. And as you say, they adapt to live with those conditions but i'm sure it's it obviously if you have to do a full day of work it's very different and it's harder to adapt um so it's pretty awful
2: yeah the the great rush to the washing machine and dishwasher and all the other things that need to be done with electricity that you haven't done in a day
0: but that seems to be
2: done with knock on wood and all that
0: yeah, I gotta say, if we were still having power issues, like if the power situation had um, continued to either like deteriorate or at least stay as bad as it was, uh, I think our moods would not nearly be as bright. <laughs> yeah,
2: it was again a bit rough there. Not gonna lie, the 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 mental health situation <laughs> during the the darkest moments were getting uh, not not ideal, I'd say. But right now yeah, it was- it's.
1: A <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I can imagine. I uh, don't know what to say, really. It feels, for a lot of us, it feels strange to be in safety and uh, not experience the power cuts when uh, people in Ukraine are. So <laughs> I can imagine.
0: So I've shared my greatest regret for the past year. Um, what did you guys, what are your guys' greatest regrets for the past year?
2: Uh, just not doing enough in general. <laughs> um, there's always the option to, you know, get out into the field for a little bit longer. There's always the option to uh, hook up with some of the next uh, aid group or what have you. And I don't know, just not doing enough things, whatever the standard of enough is supposed to be.
1: Oh, mine would be very more personal. Mine would be not being able to say goodbye to my grandma. Um, I didn't talk to her for such a long time and she was not in a position where she was able to talk because of her health. And then not being there, not being there in her last days and not being there at her funeral because funerals in Ukraine happen so fast. There's just no way of getting into Ukraine quickly enough. Um It just... Yeah, just not seeing how we were really, really close. So mine would be a considerably more personal, I
0: guess. Even the personal stories, they still matter. Um, and I guess to, and to at least a slightly brighter note, um, do you guys have any optimism for the coming year? I mean, I don't think I like any one of us believes the war is going to end in 2023, but is there anything you guys feel optimistic about?
1: I mean, I always say that I think it is possible. I think the thing that we don't know is that, well, first of all, nobody, if you ask people when will it end and nobody, if somebody claims that they know when <laughs> when it will end, you'll just know that they're lying because there's no way that anybody can know unless they're Putin themselves and they, because it's uh, down to Putin to withdraw all the troops. Um, but I, I normally say that I think it is possible because there's so much faith in the armed forces of Ukraine and, um, Among Ukrainians, and some things that seemed impossible um, for a few months, such as the liberation of Kherson, suddenly came in November. Um, So, I think knowing how good our armed forces are coping with all of this, I think there can definitely be some more good surprises uh, this year. And I normally say that when I'm asked this question, that uh, I think with West support, the west continues to support ukraine i very much hope that it is possible this year because the thing is we did we did free we did liberate a lot of territory much more than what was captured um sorry that didn't come out right (laughs) most of what was captured um since uh, february last year um so i i think that we've been doing really really good advances and there is a way to uh, liberate Donetsk now, Donbass now with the uh, retaking of uh, Liman and there's a way to liberate Crimea now, even with the retaking some of the South. So I, I think it, it could be possible. We, we never really know, but, uh, I think with the West support and with, uh, our armed forces being, um, as, as great as they have been and with winter being over, which was a scary time because of the eating being off, you know, being just generally being worried about people freezing to death. But we've survived the winter or you guys have survived the winter. Um, I have high hopes for this year. I'm not saying that will be over, but I think it is possible.
0: Anthony, what about you? What do you think good things that are going to happen in this new year of war? It seems as though,
2: you know, the big Russian offensive had stalled out um, in many places along the front. And that, and this was, probably the thing that we were all afraid of there could always be something else. But if, if, if this was it, if this was the big one, then there's really, uh, quite a lot of hope in the next year that, especially with the incoming new weapons and Western support seeming to be, uh, stronger and stronger as time goes on. Um, I don't know if this is the year that will end it because basically anytime someone says the war will be done by X, I feel that that's jinxing it. Like don't ever do that. Like the the old, the war will be over by Christmas routine is always, you know, the headline in the history book used to like mock the past. So assuming that the war will be done by any given time uh, is, is a horrible idea, but the trends are going in the correct way. Um, the big one-year speech that Putin gave was the most boring thing I've ever heard in my entire life outside of other Putin speeches. Uh, so no bombastic declarations like it was around this time last year. Uh, and that's that's a signal in its own way that he he's not trying to make any statement that he can't back up, essentially. Uh, So a lot of of good directions to go in, but I'm not going to say what's going to (laughs) happen that will curse the future.
1: Yeah, I found it interesting how this speech was very different to last year's speech at the same time. It focused so much on the domestic issues and it's possibly because they're realizing that they just can't keep going over the whole, you know, Ukraine is a failed state or Ukraine is an artificial state because nobody will. By that anymore so instead they talk about their domestic problems and the probably what seemed like 40 minutes about education and all of that so i mean hopefully that shows the sign and they um even them themselves realize that they are losing
0: well that would be a very comforting thought and i very much hope it's true uh as for me i think in the next year um we will we will likely win, more or less. Um, I don't think the missiles will stop or the shelling from their territory. But like you said, Maria, um, our military has really gotten pretty damn good uh, and like um, the chief of our military intelligence, Kirill Padanoff, um, just did a broadcast on every single radio station in Crimea. Uh, warning the traders to leave um, and promising that it's going to return to Ukraine. So I think that we, we've we got some good momentum on our side. Uh, though, of course, that does all bank on continuing support. But if there's one thing um, that I am hopeful or that I do know is going to keep on going, it's Western support. Once these institutions have moved to mobilize this money and it's finally being disbursed and the logistic chains are going to be are being set up it's going to be very difficult to stop that process that process is going to go on regardless um for a while now so at least on that end uh i'm i'm pretty optimistic
2: uh yeah so i think it's about time to wrap things up so maria plug your pluggables what you up to what are you promoting what's going on
1: um well we are writing a book as i mentioned um a partner and I. We, um, have actually written probably most of it. Um, just talking to agents now, um, and hoping that that would be released very soon it's, uh, written and it's, um, telling our story of, um, escaping and our sort of getting out, but also telling stories of others, as I said, of Max and my grandma, uh, and other Ukrainians whose kindness we observed. And we are setting up talks for Ukraine to talk about Ukraine to schools and music bands and, uh, businesses. And we are planning a documentary when we return. It'd be good to catch up with both of you when we do that documentary, because we want to talk to people who stayed as well and people who left and what help Ukraine needs in its uh, reconstructing. and also talking, um, and also um, establishing Invest in Ukraine, which is a company that will help British businesses invest in Ukraine when Ukraine wins. So these are the four things that we are working hard on. Uh, a couple of them more than the others because the other two, the, the last two, are only really possible when Ukraine wins. But we are working towards Ukraine's victory, and we working on those projects in the meantime to continue to make the world continue to talk about Ukraine.
2: And of course, we can hear you on BBC Manchester. What's what's your situation there with recording?
1: Yeah, um, so, oh, tomorrow, well, I've got such a busy day tomorrow, but it will start, uh, with a, I'll be co-hosting BBC Radio Manchester's, um, breakfast show between seven and nine a.m. UK time. Um, and it will be entirely dedicated to Ukraine. We'll be, um, showing or playing four stories that I took part in and I made myself or helped made helped me make. Um, and we will be talking about the university, how my life has changed, how life for others has changed. Um, so that should be an interesting experience. And then I'm doing various other interviews, uh, within BBC and ITV, which are like two biggest, uh, media, um, media outlets here in the UK. And I'm going to London in the evening for a, um, show called Newsnight, Night, which is like very, very big and popular. Evening show on run on BBC channel.
2: All right. Great, great to hear from you again, by the way. Like, this was a pretty serious discussion about horrible things, but like, seriously, it's fantastic hearing from you. I haven't heard from you in a while. So, just hearing your voice was nice. Um, Say hi to Jazz for me. Or if Jazz is behind you, say hi to him as well.
1: Oh, he's he's left for United Barcelona now. So, I'll, I'll pass it on to him.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So, yeah, of course. uh, So to our audience, um, make sure to check Maria's uh, social media, see what she's up to, um, support whatever uh, she's up to at the moment. And of course, thank you all for listening to this episode. Um, Again, we're releasing this on the 24th. So this is the one year anniversary of the full invasion of Ukraine and the beginning of you know, Kiev being bombed. I'm looking through my my Twitter feed and all that of as I was live tweeting, oh, there's planes overhead right now. But uh, thanks so for listening. Thanks for your support through this last year. And of course, Slava Ukraini. Heroin Slava. Heroyam Slava. If you would like to support this podcast, the best way to do it is to tell your friends and family, share us on social media, spread the word to whoever you think would be interested. This full scale war has been going on for a year but we still need your eyes, your ears, and sometimes your wallets, which is why, like I said in the last episode, I have created a Linktree page that has a list of resources about Ukraine and a variety of charities that I think are quite reputable and useful if you would like to give to any of them. If you would like to financially support this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash ukrainewithouthype. And I would now like to thank our very generous sponsors. Deborah Grazer, Will Stevens, David Shepard, Giorgio, Ivana Kukratskaya, Michael Drucker, Anna Karen, Anonymous, Devi, Ettenay, Kevin, Michael Wickman, Stam Toman, Theo, Adam Poppenheimer, Ada McDonnell, Alex Grochmull, Anastasia, Barbara, Big Rob, Brianna Rhoda, Captain Technical, Chris Bennington, Chris Walker, Crystal Burns, Daniel Spring, David Wall, Eric Honold, Grace Krause, Had to Laugh, Jacob Poem, James Wise, Jenna Louise, Jurd, Justin Devendorf, Ken Shoemaker, Kristen Swanland, Laura DeLeon, Lev Goldinger, Levy Grove, Lottie, Marguerite, Matt Miller, Miss Melissa Koselko, Mike Perrone, Noam Hart, Paul Bailey, Randy McNerlin, Sanjay, Scott Gengris. Scott Tokaryuk, Steve Bien, Steven Greenberg, Stuart Akers, T. Bart, Thomas Sobyak, Veronique, and Victoria Leontaneva. Thank you all very much for your support. You make this all possible. And going into the second year of war, Slava Ukraini.